Hey, missionaries, we want to invite you February 27th, 2020. The Michelle Mission is doing a live event. We're doing our 200th episode and we are reviewing Shaft, which will be followed by a 70s soundtrack Soul Train dance party DJed by international DJ himself, Scheme Richards. It all takes place at World Cafe Live here in Philadelphia. Tickets are on sale at bshowmission.com or worldcafelive.com. Right now, get them, drink specials, having fun, come dressed in the 70s. I got my bell bottoms. I bought Vincent Afro <laughs> with mutton chops. There you go. We're going to have a ball. That's right. See you there. Welcome to the Michelle Mission, Two Men, One Podcast. Every black film ever made. My name is Len, a.k.a. The Bat Tribble. And as always, I'm joined by my partner. Hey, this is Vincent Williams. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we are still in that magical decade we like to call (laughs) the 70s. Right, 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 right. As we take a detour from what was previously announced... To go to, back to 1973, in fact. Yeah, same year. How about that? And give you five on the black hand side. Five on the black hand side. Starring Leonard Jackson and Clarice Taylor. Yes. from Written and directed from a play that was written by Charles Russell. And it was directed by Oscar Williams. Yes. And this was... Vince's Audible. Audible? Why is a man called Adam nowhere to be found? I know. We should probably talk about that for a second. Yeah. How is that nowhere? We announced that we were going to be doing A Man Called Adam, which was from the 50s, I believe. Uh, No, it's like 66. Right, right. Mid-60s, starring uh, Sammy Davis Jr. But that film is not not streaming anyplace. It's not even on DVD. It's not even on DVD for, for us to purchase. Yeah. That is crazy. We talk about Especially this. considering it's not just Sammy Davis Jr., but all the other stars that are in that film. And it's, I mean, this isn't really an obscure film. No. Like, this is a film that comes up. Yes. We talk about this periodically. Like, there are real holes mm-hmm. in what's available in black cinema. Right. And it's also, I mean, as much as if it's, a, it's criminal that it happens, it's not even, like, no one has even pirated it. Right, and right. Throw it up on YouTube. Or again, you know, when we've run into this problem before, it's 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 not even like it didn't make the leap from DVD to streaming. Mm-hmm. So we have to put it on the back burner until we buy a DVD. Right. I I don't I couldn't really like I saw a a used DVD for like two hundred dollars, mm-hmm. like something ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It's it's you cannot find this film. It it, it was actually pretty. Pretty depressing. <laughs> it, it actually was. It actually is very. Yeah, it was, it was a little sobering. Right. So, so we are not going to do a man called Adam right now, but hopefully one day. But speaking of Sammy Davis Jr. Speaking of Sammy Davis Jr. And in regards to our review last week of Black Caesar. Yes. 
Rojo writes. Hey, Rojo. Come on, y'all. Little Caesar <laughs> was Edward G. Robinson, not James Cagney. Edward G. Robinson. Edgar was, yeah, say, Little Caesar. James Cagney was, you dirty rat, public enemy. Yeah. I have to say, though, I like the idea of Sammy Davis Jr. in the role of Little Caesar or um, Black Caesar. I've often thought that film deserved a remake. While Williamson is nice on the eyes, I'm not sure his acting lives up to the requirements of the role. Sammy could have killed it. How come Frank and Dino and them never gave Sammy any financial advice? Or more importantly, if they did, why didn't Sammy take it? Sammy's career could have had an entirely different trajectory had he taken the role. The original is one of those 1930 movies I actually like because the script is so tight. Done with a 1970s sensibility and that James Brown soundtrack could have been amazing with Sammy in the title role. I also agree that it's ripe for a remake. Daniel Kaluuya perhaps. Someone scrappy and unexpected. Had it happened 20 years ago, my vote for a title character would have gone to Don Cheadle. Oh my goodness. I definitely could see Don Cheadle in that role. Yeah, and then to bring it full circle, one of my favorite obscure Don Cheadle roles is when he played Sammy Davis Jr. Yes, in the Rat Pack. In the Rat Pack miniseries. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. One, I can see I can see Sammy, not listening to to Frank and Dino well, if they're giving him any advice. And to be fair, I actually see him, whatever troubles he has, hiding it from them, trying to keep up with the Joneses. Well, I'm I'm not I'm gonna try not to get pulled too much into my Sammy Davis Jr. bag. But there's there's a whole psychological profile of Sammy Davis Jr. Mm-hmm. that connects to his financial troubles. And I'll just say this. Sammy Davis Jr. always talked about during the early days mm-hmm. when he would go and perform at the Copa and do these things, and they were still segregated spots. Mm-hmm. So that after the shows, he couldn't go to the club, he couldn't go to a lot of these parties. So that he would have these elaborate parties in his room, right. in his suite, and his goal was to make the parties he threw mm-hmm. better than the parties in the club, the parties out in the world that he couldn't go into because he was black. Right. And he kind of carried that sensibility with him throughout his life, I think, where it, it really was this sort of deep insecurity that Sammy Davis and, and deep hurt. Yes. That he wanted to control the environment and have people come to his house. And if I'm going to have people come to my house, uh, I'll never forget in his biography, he talks about you would go other places and they would have mixed nuts and I'd have bowls of cashews (laughs) or, you know, other places would have this and I'd have, you know, all this cocaine. And so all of this extravagance that he exhibited came from this place of hurt. So that I think you're right. I, I think, I think Frank Sinatra and, and, and Sammy Davis Jr. has been was vocal about this. Frank various times. Frank Sinatra would step in and say, "Yeah, you know, you need to slow down." In various aspects of his life, mm-hmm. and Sammy Davis Jr. would say, 
I, you know, I gotta be me, man. I gotta be me. <laughs> I gotta be me. But thank you, Rojo, for correcting us. I, I love the fact that, like the beginning, she said, "Come on, guys," where she was more disappointed than anything else that we messed it up. We're bad. We're sorry, Rojo. <laughs> we're we're sorry, but funny story in regards to she talks talks about um, Sammy Davis Jr. possibly s- starring in this film with a '70s sensibility and that James Brown soundtrack if sammy davis jr had starred in his film james brown is not on the soundtrack because because funny story years ago when i was an aspiring artist somebody hooked me up by way of liking my art with gilda woods gilda woods is famously the wife of the renowned philadelphia radio dj georgie woods okay who had passed away okay by that time but she was, you know, an aspiring like entrepreneur trying to do some things. And she was trying to develop both a comic book and a subsequent action figure based on James Brown. Okay. And so she asked me to help like draw up a couple of ideas. And I came up with this idea of like the action figure was just basically James Brown and like his in his suit and he had like a, a his um his microphone and stuff like that, and he can we articulate so you can do the dance moves and everything. But I had this idea that when James Brown saw crime, he would go to his home and he'd put on a ring that was given to him by Sammy Davis Jr., and that would turn him into, like, super soul, and he'd be like this crime fighter. This is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my entire life right now as I sit here, and it's <laughs> happening in real time. So I thought that was a great idea. Yes. And the idea of, like, mixing in those two legends, right. James Brown. Sammy Davis Jr. just walking around giving around magic rings. Well, if he was going to give a ring to anybody, he'd give it to James Brown. And if you were going to get a magic ring from somebody, it would be, be Sammy, Sammy Davis, Davis Jr. Jr. This is fantastic. So I show it to Gilda, and she loves everything about my idea she loves the art and everything like that but she says but james brown would have never taken a ring from sammy davis jr they did not like each other interesting they did not like each other at all and she if i remember correctly and i don't want to misrepresent it but if i remember remember correctly she said it did have something to do with sammy who you remember becomes very controversial in the late 60s and, and early 70s. Right. You know, standing with Nixon and yeah. everything like that. Yeah. And James Brown is decidedly on the other side. Right, right. Of that. Um, and James not, and James having a bit of a problem. And that, that caught being a part of the friction that was between those two. They did not like each other. And at this moment, at, and at that time, they both were still alive. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. that I was working on this project. She said they they did not like each other. So I, I forget we had to change the ring to like it was somebody else's ring or something. Okay. But uh, yeah. So no, that wouldn't have happened. That wouldn't have happened. And Sammy Davis Jr., you got to remember also around this time is when, if he hasn't put it out yet, he's working on putting out the classic album of Sammy Davis Jr. sings your favorite TV shows. Yes. So... If he's putting out that album, oh, you best believe he's going to do the soundtrack to the movie that he's starring in. Pay the cost to be the boss. Mama's dead. <laughs> Mama's dead. So that's there. So that's that's that. 
And this has been story time with Uncle Lynn. <laughs> we got an email from Monique Granby. Hey, Monique. This is in regards to Queen and Slim. Okay. Vince and Len, happy 2020. It's been hey. a long minute, and I've missed y'all, fam. Been headfirst in writing and right. trying to not to lose my ish with 45's mess. Oh, boy. But I digress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be it's, best. Ecstatic that you chose Queen and Slim as your first film of 2020 to break down. The cinematography, editing, characters, and just damn. You know I got my two cents, though. I get the Thelma and Louise connection and even Bonnie and Clyde somewhat. But for me, this was a black love story. A messed up one, but a love story nonetheless. I didn't agree that the love story story wasn't developed. Their courtship was the journey to escape. The heightened situation trimmed the fat of the normal process of a relationship. I felt that the urgency of the two needing to connect. Though it was never said, only lightly alluded to, these two were each other's saviors from past devastating relationships. So have so them having sex at the cemetery in tandem with the riot was dramatic and compelling. All of the emotion came to a head, pardon the fun. I thought it worked. Agree with you about the boy shooting the black cop in the face. I kind of got what Miss Waith was attempting, but it but felt but it felt um but felt that it was reaching. Possibly if it was shown that the boy experienced some traumatic cop experience himself, maybe, but that side storyline would have pulled focus from the main story. You felt the heightened moment with the riot without that aspect. Don't agree with Queen being a bad lawyer, though. It could have been flushed out a bit more for sure, but early on she did state that her client lost his appeal. Again, not said, but alluded to, I felt that she was at her wit's end with being a lawyer. She played by the rules and was um, doing work from the inside to bring change. But with that case, it was still the same-ish. At a loss, pissed, and needing something, she takes on... She goes on the Tinder date. Lastly, I'm not agreeing that Queen and Slim getting shot shouldn't have been shown. I'm not into gratuitous violence either. Totally agree that we see too many dead black bodies in real life. But I thought that scene was the visualization of Black Lives Matter, putting an exclamation point on it. These two died for protecting themselves from someone who had no respect for their lives. This movie hit me in the feels deep. I'm still thinking about it. While there were some misses, I forgave them because the overall film was so compelling and timely. Thank you for doing this film because I really wanted to hear you, your guys' take on it. Keep educating us. Much love, Mo. Oh, well, thank you, Monique. It was very thoughtful. Yeah, very thoughtful. It's Queen and Slim, man. Queen and Slim. I've had more conversations about Queen and Slim in the past two months than I have any other film. So, regardless, I think that says something about the power of this film. Very true. Yeah, and and don't wait so long to write us again, Monique. She's writing. She's busy. Okay. So All right. Do the work. She's doing the work. Doing yes. the work. Yeah. Give her give her a break. But you could have stopped by a little sooner. Anyway. <laughs> 
But I digress. Uh, let's see. Going to our Facebook group. Yeah. What do we have here? Lance Hansen. Hey, Lance. I was just listening to the episode. I think it was The Distinguished Gentleman, where you two go off on a tangent, as we are wont to as do. As we are wont to do. About Western TV shows. <laughs> That's right. I love your conversations about old television. I know you're busy. <laughs> But maybe a second podcast where that's the focus? I'd listen for sure. I'd love to hear a breakdown of Barney Miller. Barney Miller. Barney Miller, my my father, rest in peace, my father's favorite TV show of all time. One of the best cast ever. Yes. One of the best cast ever. And, and I mean that as a cast, like the way they worked with each other. Mm-hmm. Is is brilliant. And talk about an inexpensive show. Yeah. Oh yeah. They maybe left that squad room twice and in I ten years. And I can't remember the two times. Because both of the two times were probably in the first or second season when they would sometimes very periodically and very quickly show Barney at home. Right. I mean maybe setting up the fish spinoff. Yeah. Oh yeah, maybe right. there an episode too. setting up fish, but boy. Yeah, Barney Miller was some good stuff. Yeah, Barney Miller. And it holds up. It does hold yeah, up pretty the, well. The, the reruns still come on like me TV or something. And it's surprisingly well built mm-hmm. as a show. So big Barney Miller fan. As am I. We also heard on Twitter from Julius Reck. Hey, Julius. At Michelle Mission. Hey, I'm currently listening to the last black man in San Francisco pod. Okay. And I can hear someone breathing heavy on the mic when they're not actively speaking. (laughs) Is that the whole tweet? That's the entire entire tweet. (laughs) We'll try and keep the breathing to a minimum, Julius. Julius likes his pods professional. What you guys said about that, Mr. Producer Man? All that breathing. What you doing breathing when another brother's talking? (gasps) (laughs) It's your turn to talk, right? It's your turn to talk. Well, give me a second. (gasps) Monsieur C. Take little breaths. <laughs> oh God! Uh, we'll try and do better. Uh, um, onward and upward. It's on, 2020. Yes, 2020. It, it can only get better. It can only get better. <laughs> Dude, we finally got it down. <laughs> Episode 189. Uh, we doing it right. Oh. Uh, Mr. Senior Love Daddy. Hey, Mr. Senior Love Daddy. Hits us up on Twitter. Michelle Mission, catching up on the archives as I found the show in early 2019. In your review of 48 Hours. Oh, okay. There was a discussion of buddy cop films. Yes. In the, the, in the discussion, it was said the, that Die Hard didn't become 
a buddy cop movie until the third movie. I digress. I would say that both, and then it cuts off. Well, the first one... The first one is not a buddy. Not a buddy cop. But because, neither is the second one. Because, right, because I'm, I'm trying to remember when does... Um, Samuel Jackson. No, no, no. I'm talking about in Die Hard. When, um, why did I, how did Man. I just forget Family Matters' name? Oh, um, um, Winslow. Um, like Vel Johnson? Yeah, Re- Reginald Vel Johnson. Right, Reginald Vel Johnson comes into Die Hard when? The second or third act? Probably the second act. Second act, and then they're kind of talk, but but that's not a buddy. It's not a buddy film. Not at all. And then the second film, the second film, he doesn't, he doesn't really have a partner at all. You know what? Can I tell you a secret? I have no memories of any Die Hard film except for the first one. I know Samuel Jackson is in one of them. He's in the third one, right? That's is that Die Hard with a Vengeance? Yes, right. And that is that is a buddy cop, and I have no memory of it whatsoever. Oh, it's a fun movie. Okay, sure. Fun movie. And then Die Hard 2 is Die Harder? No, Die Hard 2 is actually, I think it's just Die Hard 2. It's just Die Hard 2? like funky with until Die Hard. And what was the plot of Die Hard 2? Die Hard 2 um, primarily takes place at an airport. And he is trying to get home. No, she is on the plane. The wife is on the plane. The plane is coming in for a landing. He is at the airport to meet her, and they discover that there is a coordinated effort between the like terrorists on the plane and people at the airport. And you find that there actually is this is so coordinated that it runs into like the security at the airport as well. John Amos is in that film, and I know I saw it. I have no memory of any of the Die Hard films. It's an okay film. Except it's not Die great. Okay, it sounds super 90s. It's very, very 90s. And would I have enjoyed it as much as I did when they remade it as Passenger 57? I I myself enjoy it more than Passenger 57. I haven't watched Passenger 57 not too long ago. I, that's a movie that doesn't hold up for me. Did you bet on black? Perhaps that is why. See, see, I, see I that's where you messed up. See, that's where you messed up. Always been on black. I, I, I didn't. <laughs> I bet on Bruce. And I won. And you won. So, um, so no, it doesn't become a cop film, a, the buddy cop film, until the third one. Okay. Uh, senior Love Daddy. I'll let y'all fight it out. I have no, in, no, no memory of Die Hard, past Die Hard. Did you see the story that I want to credit the person that actually posted this to um, Craig Wooten? Hey, Craig. He posted a story about Lena Waithe weighing in on Tyler Perry's comment about writer rooms. Yes. Yes, I did. Tyler Perry had tweeted, um, for those that maybe missed this, Tyler Perry sent out a tweet about, uh, let's see, I want to read his tweet. Um I don't know if you know this, but all shows on televisions have a writer's room. And most of the time, there are 10 to 12 people that write these television shows. While I have no writer's room, nobody writes any of my work. I write it all. Why am I telling you this? I wrote all of these scripts by myself in 2019. What's my point? Work ethic. Yes. And Lena Waithe was asked to comment on this. Right, because this caused a firestorm Mm -hmm. of controversy. And she says, every artist is different. And I got to say, Tyler has been very supportive of me and a lot of other 
black artists. It's all a very interesting family we have, and I think Black Hollywood is a family. We have our issues like everybody else, but sometimes family business is family business. I love that. And also, Black Hollywood is big business. My thing is, I cannot do everything by myself. There's no way. I think people like to believe that. I think that's easy for them to say, yeah, that's all you. But the truth is, I have so many amazing writers, phenomenal writers, who have brought these characters to life. And then she goes on to extol the virtues of the people, sure, the writers that sure. she work with. Um, but yes, the, the magic line in there is that, you know, family business is family business. Right, right. And, and there was a great interview with Tyler Perry that I just read yesterday, I think in Level magazine. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in, and he talked about this because this, again, sparked this great firestorm of controversy and people said well obviously you write all of them you know talking about the quality of the scripts and then more um seriously people saw this <clears throat> as a way of Tyler Perry limiting the opportunities for other writers mm-hmm. to come in and and Tyler Perry talked about the fact that he did have a writers room at one point for I think House of Pain and and I forgot, like Meet the Browns, one of those shows he had on TBS, and how it was a disaster. Mm-hmm. He said they they couldn't get the voice right, they couldn't get the scripts right. Uh, the ratings dropped when the writing room scripts were used. He would send uh, scripts back for rewrites, and according to him, it got to the point where he thought these writers were sending him scripts to send back for rewrites on purpose because then they would get paid twice. And he makes this really good case of his audience likes his voice Mm -hmm. and no one gets his voice right, but him. Mm -hmm. And then he says, you know, we have other things in, in the hopper that, that I produce where writers will have opportunities, but for my shows, I write. And then he mentions, you know, Aaron Sorkin apparently didn't have a writer's room on um the West Wing. On the West Wing and, and he named somebody else. But I hate to say it, but he made good I like he made good points to me. I said, all right, look, Tyler Perry, people like Tyler Perry. And if Tyler Perry is the one that has to do Tyler Perry stuff, hey, look. I hear him on that and the Aaron Sorkin um comparison is a little apt, but is not 100% clear because while Aaron Sorkin on the first four years of West Wing which were his years um, did write primarily almost every show okay. he, he didn't write them all but he wrote like 96% of them he did have a writer's room and the process was that while he would be writing the script his writer's room would help him shape the characters as well as the stories. Yes. And then he would definitely, as the leading voice, make sure that all of the scripts were in his voice. Okay. But he welcomed their input in helping him flesh out this world. Okay. So that it was more of a more of a rounded world so that all of these characters didn't just become ciphers of one 
one or more of his points of view. Okay. And I think that that is that is the role of a head writer, a showrunner in developing a writer's room. If these people in in Tyler Perry's writer's rooms that he had for these shows couldn't capture his voice, that's when you sit down with them and you you work with them or you take what they are bringing bringing to you and then you shape it into your voice. But you don't you don't not welcome them their input. Or you do it yourself. Yeah, but I think doing in your doing it yourself, then you you then have shows that show a lack of originality or fully fleshed out stories and characters. But they're super successful, and his fan base love them. Okay, but there's <laughs> no, no, no. You can't okay that. Like you can't dismiss that. They're super successful. Mm-hmm. His fans love it. Mm-hmm. How do you rebut that? Giving your fans you, giving them you, giving them what they want, but you can still make it better. Why do I have to make it better if they love what I'm giving them? Sooner or later, look, sooner or later. We gonna have to make our peace with this Tyler Perry thing. It's not for us. It's not. It is a closed ecosystem between Tyler Perry and his audience. My problem, though, is that I want to consider Tyler Perry, regardless of what I may think of his work, I want to consider him as an artist because I believe that he is an artist. Absolutely. But I believe that it is every artist's responsibility if for if to no one else but themselves themselves to grow in their art and he does not to some degree he's digressed first of all i think i feel that's my opinion i think you got to my opinion it is your show we know it's your opinion we know this your your jam um First of all, I think that reflects a very specific type of mindset and approach to the role of art. You know, this sense that the artist has to have this continuing evolution as an artist and 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 he needs to 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 to, to better himself in the form and in all of this. Like I think that is a very esoteric abstract approach to thinking about art and the purpose of art. And and to be clear, I'm 100% being devil's advocate right now because you and I are, of course, 100% on the same page when we talk about art and black art and, and black beauty and depictions of blackness and all this, that, and the other. But again, I also, we also have to acknowledge that that is our point of view from our experiences and go back to our queen and slim argument to a certain extent our dare i say privileged relationship with art okay tyler perry's audience has proved over almost 20 years they get something different from tyler perry's work Mm -hmm. they have a different relationship with tyler perry's work than the relationship that you and I have with art. 
and that's just the truth. So that these the 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 this criteria that we're championing that you know he needs he needs to sharpen his voice, he needs to have new like everything. Like y'all look, look y'all, we almost 200 in. Y'all can go listen to the archives. Everything that we've ever said about Tyler Perry in his art that is not relevant to his audience. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I don't know how relevant it is to Tyler Perry, who regardless of how you feel about him, I think one thing that you can 100% say about Tyler Perry is that he privileges his audience. Yes, yes. And there's no question in my mind that if he had brought that writer's room in and they did all this stuff, and I'm sure there were some beautiful young men and women in there who had graduated from Harvard and in Morehouse and gone to, to, to beautiful master's levels programs and got master's degree in screenwriting and this, that, and the other. If his audience had responded to that, I think Tyler Perry would still have a writer's room. But I think Tyler Perry saw that his audience wasn't being served the way that his audience wanted to be served. So he stepped in and took the reins. And again, it's like, it always comes back to, it's not for us. Like it's a closed ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm on Tyler Perry's side on this one. Like a writer's room doesn't work for him. And it doesn't work for his audience. And he makes them shows and them movies. And they're not for me. Okay. I know it makes you sad and it frustrates you. <laughs> Tyler Perry makes you sad and he frustrates you. It's one of my goals in life to make you have peace with Tyler Perry. Like, I want you and Tyler Perry to have peace. I'm like Martin Lawrence in Boomerang. And I'm trying to bring uh, you, your Eddie Murphy, and Tyler Perry's David Allen Greer together. So, like, I'm doing the chicken in the bag. And, and, and I'm going to say, we, we boys. We supposed to be boys. We're supposed to be boys. And I'm going to come up and you and Tyler Perry are going to say, we made up. We all right. And I would say, bring it in then. Bring it in. And we're going to hug. We all going to hug. And then when we hug, the light's going to come on in the background. Okay. <laughs> Y'all should see Lynn's face. Y'all should see Lynn. Lynn's not going to hug Tyler Perry anytime soon. But I'm working on it. Um, did you see that Trevor Noah... Slam the Oscars. It's predictable that the one black acting nomination for this year's 2020 Oscars is playing a slave. That Oscar nomination going to Cynthia Arrivo for her depiction of Harriet Tubman. Right, right. Which she's good. Yeah. But look, look, you know, talking about talking about going into the archives. We, this is what the third year we've had the, the Oscars have come up, and it's the third year. I'm I'm not thinking. Here's the bad thing. I looked at all of the the pictures that were up for stuff. Mm -hmm. Not only have I not seen any of them, the only one that I really have any interest in seeing, like I I really dropped the ball going to see Parasite. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, I really dropped. And I like Bong Joon-ho. And I like him. Yeah. Like I like the host. And um, did you see... Oh, what's in that? How did I just forget the train movie? Oh, Snowpiercer, yeah. Did you see Snowpiercer? Mm-hmm. Snowpiercer was ridiculously good. 
It had no business being as good as it was. I was, Lynn, you took the words out of my mouth. I was halfway through Snowpiercer, and I said, there's no way this movie should be this good. I know. I know. We're just moving backwards on a train. Like, why is this movie this good? (laughs) But it was a good film. So I really meant to go see Parasite. But besides Parasite, I've been at this. You don't want to see Little Woman? I I don't. I want, no, I don't. You didn't want to see, um, I don't think it was nominated for Best Actor, uh, a Best Movie. Um, Once Upon a Time, you saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I actually haven't. Oh, wow, you haven't. I have. You're a Django. I mean, you're a Quentin fan. I'm not a Quentin fan. That's right. Yeah, I'm not a Quentin fan. I like a couple of his movies, but Quentin Tarantino doesn't get me to the movies. I like it. It's it's a good, I like them. Yeah. I do want to see Little Women, and I do want to see Parasite. I don't know why I want to see Little Women. I mean, it looks like it's well made. Yeah. It's all just so overwhelmingly white. That's true. Like, it's like. Very true. Very true. You know, even once upon a time in Hollywood, it was. Very white. Like, like it's, it's, and, and it's, it's that particular type of romanticizing mm-hmm. of the white past that it just, le- the older I get, it just leaves me cold. I feel you. So. Yeah, yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah. So it's not unexpected. It's, that... it's not unexpected, and I'm not banging my head against that brick wall anymore. Old rich white goo- dudes say movies should get statues is no longer interesting to me at all. Yeah, so it's all good. I, I wish Cynthia Revo all the wish her well. Yeah, because I'm a huge fan of her. I'm gonna say what I always say. I like it when black people get these accolades because of what it does for their careers. One last thing. Um, okay. Media Res okay. is bringing author Nnedi Okorafor's award-winning book, Venti, yes, to the screen. Hulu yes, has handed out a script order for an adaptation of the three-part African futuristic novella. The recipient of the prestigious Hugo and Nubella Awards, Venti is set in a te- technologically and socially advanced future and tells the story of a brilliant and rebellious young woman who is destined to lead her community in Africa but when she's admitted to the most prestigious academy in the in the galaxy she chooses a different path and rejecting her family's wishes leaves her community behind in favor of the starry skies it's a great novella it is it, it is a great novella actually for 2019's um Octavia City well, yeah, I believe it was in 2019 uh, for Octavia City, where we read Afrofuturistic works uh-huh. on on air. I actually read the first chapter of Binti on, on the radio yeah. for people to listen to. I actually, I'll find a clip from it and I'll put it in the um, Facebook group so people can check it out. Binti is fantastic. Yeah. And, and I hope this actually shakes out. Yeah, me too. Well, I got a funny feeling it, it will. I hope so. That's cool, and it, it it's it's and it's very cinematic when you. Oh yeah! When I, when oh I yeah! Nandi Okafor is a great writer. Yeah, pretty dope. All right, ladies and gentlemen. All uh, right. Um, one one last note, just one last little uh, um, congratulations to Spike Lee, who has yes. been named the jury president for the seventy third annual Cannes Film Festival in, this May. The announcement was made. Um, 
Tuesday morning, a couple of Tuesdays ago, it makes Spike Lee not only the first African-American to serve as jury president, but also the first person from the African diaspora, as Lee championed in this statement uh, coming out of the festival. To me, he says, the Cannes Film Festival, besides being the most important film festival in the world, no disrespect to anybody, has had a great impact on, on my film career. You could easily say Cannes changed the trajectory of who I became in world cinema starting way back in 1986 when they featured my first film she's got to have it and it will go on to win the uh prix de la chenille in the director's fortnight so congratulations to spike congratulations to spike lee i love it that's cool oh man uh i don't don't know if they're ready (laughs) that's all i'm gonna say they never are i don't know if they're ready (laughs) and i hope you're ready ladies and gentlemen all right because it's time for our review of five on the black hand five side. On the black hand side. We'll be right back with our movie review after we step to these messages. Status, immigration, and people. Status tells the human stories that immigration impacts. Somebody might be in the U.S. on a E-1 or an H-1B, maybe a J-2 or an F-1. They might be undocumented, or they may have their green card. They might be moving to Canada for a job, or to the U.K., or maybe they're trying to escape violence in their home country. In any case, every immigrant has a story. Status tells those stories and how the complex reality of immigration weaves its way into the narrative. Listen here to Status, Immigration and People, available on Podglamour. Hey, look, I don't mean to be dipping into y'all's business. But you've been comfortized, blackularized, and superflied. You've been macked, hammered, slaughtered, and shafted. Now we want to turn you on to some brand new jive. You're going to be glorified, unified, and filled with pride when you see five on the black hand side. Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. Five. the black hand side. It's a real clean scene with a lot of laughter in between. It's all about a family of five and how they survive. Check out Mr. Brooks. John Henry is his name. Male chauvinism is his game. Controlling women is an art. You have to have a certain knack. Uh Oh, talk that talk, John Henry. This is Mrs. Brooks. She's tired of singing the blues, done paid enough dues, says she's gonna put on her walk-in shoes. I am leaving, Mr. Brooks. Oh, my God. This is number one son, Booker T. Booker T. Washington Brooks. (laughs) You gonna put down that spear? Can a buffalo skate? Uh, And this is number two son, Gideon. He's a real down dude with a beautiful attitude. 
All slim and trim in his afro, yeah. He's an ace in any race. Ah, And dig, daughter Gail. Ugh, looks good. Like a sister should. She's uptight and full of fight. This is the 20th century. It's our way of saying we're black people. What? Then there's Marvin, Preston, Sweetmeat, Ruby, Rolls Royce, Stormy Monday, and me. Oh, fun-loving. I might not be the baddest man in the world, but I'm in the top two, and my father is getting old. <laughs> the bad guys are winning. Your spirit's gonna be rejuvenated, your mind's elevated, and your soul celebrated. Good vibes are gonna thrive when you see five on the black hand side. The Black Hand Side. Five on the Black Hand Side, a 1973 black exploitation comedy based on the play by Charlie L. Russell. Shot in Los, Los Angeles, California, this film features Leonard Jackson as John Henry Brooks. Um, the tagline for the film You've been coffee ties. Blackularized and <laughs> superflied, but now you're going to be glorified, unified, and filled with pride <laughs> when you see five on the black hand side. During the weekend of their daughter's wedding, Gladys Brooks, a meek wife, played by Clarice Taylor, and her three children, Gideon, Booker, and Gail, finally decide to stand up to their overbearing husband and father who displays retrogressive behavior. This family comedy was Vince's selection for this week on the mission. Vince, what say you of five on the black hand side? Well, as, as you all know, this is not my original choice for this episode. We ran into issues with the man called Adam and the actual text exchange between Lynn and I was Lynn said, hey, this isn't streaming. And I said, well, I guess we got to do five on the black hand side because I always have had, I've always had this film in my back pocket. Okay. Waiting to pull it out. Uh, I just, I just have real genuine affection for this film. This is a film that, that I've enjoyed almost all my life. And I, I think it's a film that does not get the the shine that other other films from this era that that people have this genuine affection for these sort of warm films like when you think about the warm 70s films you, you think about uptown saturday night yep. you think about um a film that glenn terman's going to be in a, a year from now coolie high mm -hmm. and these are films that that have held up and i i put this film right with those, I think it's worth noting that even in 1973, where where black exploitation is moving along, but it's still 73. And depending on when you say that black exploitation ended, you know whether you choose 77 when Jaws, I mean when Star Wars comes out, mm -hmm. or or a little later on, we've talked about we've talked previously about what counts as the last 
black exploitation film. It's fair to say 1973, like we said last week, is still fairly early. Yes. But it's worth noting, as you said, you know, you've been Coffee's eyes, you've been Blackula's. There was always this vein of quote unquote black exploitation films that counter programmed. You're right. That very overtly, very consciously said that the films that are coming out present blackness in a way that is violent, that is sexualized, that all this stuff, and therefore we are going to make something that counters that. And just in our ongoing conversation about black films from the 70s, this is part of what I love, that there really was this great variety Mm -hmm. of films that came out. First and foremost, I really, really, really love this cast. Like, I think this is, I, I love this cast. We've talked about um, Mr. Brooks, yeah, played by Leonard Jackson, once or twice. He's one of those character actors that pops up all throughout the 70s yes. and 80s. What I always think of him as, he played the, the chemist in Boomerang, mm-hmm. who is angry when Stranger throws the panties in his face. <laughs> and Marcus tickles him, and he says, Marcus, you devil! <laughs> Leonard Jackson as Mr. Brooks plays plays it right down the line where he is overbearing. He does have these sort of views. He is the foil. Yes. But at the same time, there's never a moment that you doubt his love for this family. Mm. He's set in his ways, all these things, but he loves this family. His wife played by the the great Clarice Taylor, who's probably best known as, um, she played Cliff's mother on the Cosby show for years. But that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's what people always think about her as. That's not where I, my, I, my first memory, but that's not where I go. What's your first right. memory? Do you go to Sanford and Son? I go to Sanford You go to Sanford Son. <laughs> I, I was just about to say, but because she played the grandmother on the Cosby show for so many years, people forget she was this great comedic actor yeah. all throughout the 70s. And as Lynn just said, she played Cousin Emma mm-hmm. on a hilarious episode of, of uh, Sanford, Sanford and, and Son. Son. And throughout the 70s, you get, and this is not the first time we've talked about Clarice Taylor, where Clarice Taylor brings this warmth and humor mm-hmm. to this role as, as she is evolving mm-hmm. into the woman that she's going to be. The children, look, it's two Dorville Martins in a row. Yeah. Two Dorville Martins. We're going to talk about Dorville. We're going to talk about Dorville Martins in a row. And Dorville Martin doesn't have a whole lot to do in this film, but here's this word again. There's a warmth to Dorville Martin. There's a warmth to his relationship with the rest of his family. It's just nice seeing him. Mm. It's nice seeing him. Playing the younger brother is, of course, Glenn Turman. Yep. And this is an early role for Clint Turner. Yes, very. Yeah, this is his first real role. Feature film. It, right. He had a couple of bit parts, but this is before Cooley High. Mm-hmm. And Glenn Turman as the college student, the radical college student, is great. And then speaking of Sanford and Son, I actually have not seen um, the sister, Ruby, played by Virginia Capers. I've not seen her a lot, mm-hmm. but she was in a great episode of Sanford and yeah. Son where she played Janet Du Bois' daughter and the two of them were trying to uh, seduce right. Fred and, and, and Lamont. 
So just as a primary cast, this family, I really, really like them. Like, I just really enjoyed the time that the, that the, the story spends on the interaction between the various permutations where you have Mr. Brooks and his sons. You have Mr. Brooks. There's a, one, there's a wonderful moment with Mr. Brooks and his daughter early on where he's being Mr. Brooks and stern and he's telling her to do things. And then she comes and she tickles him. And it's just a sweet moment. Because daughters always have the button. Because daughters always have they the button. They always know where the button is for There's pop. Mrs. Brooks and her three children, and she has a little interacts with all three of her children. So you start with the family, and then you kind of expand from there. Mr. Brooks has a barber shop that, much like with the family, I could have just stayed in that barber shop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I could have stayed in the barber shop where, where you have talking about actors that we've spoken of fondly mm-hmm. on this show. You have Sonny Jim. Yep. Who is the shoeshine guy. Sweet Meat. Sweet Meat. And Dick Anthony Williams. I know, right? As a barber. And I have to say, this is the barber shop I remember as a kid. Yeah. Like with, with the older dudes who are in there. And it was always a dude in a uniform. Like I love the detail that it was a mailman in there. Mm-hmm. But he's in there all day. Yeah. It was always people just sort of living in this barber shop. Yeah. Mrs. Brooks has her own life during the day where she's hanging out with her girlfriends, <laughs> including, <laughs> including a pre-Good Times Janet Du Bois. That's right. As Stormy. So that plot-wise, it's it's a it's 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 a war, it's a generational war, it's a battle of the generations. It's young people versus old people. There's a bit of of a gender war again mrs brooks feels like she's being stifled and she wants to be liberated if you will Mm. but it's super light as far as the plot is concerned and then there's just there's just this wonderful 1973 optimism black optimism where the answer to every problem is just being black like just putting on a dashiki and mm-hmm. being black solves all the problems for everyone involved. And and it's this optimism that even in 1973, I suspect, didn't reflect reality. Mm-hmm. But I appreciate this film depiction of it, where where you just need to get in touch with everything and and and, and put on this again, put on a dashiki and and change your name. And and what I put in my notes is that this is a depiction of a 70s. That didn't exist, but that you kind of want it to exist. So that I just really, really like this movie. I had actually, I've always, you know, I've heard the the phrase, give me five on a black hand side, you know, um, basically like, you know, give me five. I don't even know if people even know about giving five anymore. I know. You know, like you would actually like you slap hands. These kids with their Twitter and their Right, SoundCloud rappers and their tattoos. <laughs> okay, Vince. All right, get off my lawn. <laughs> um, so I'd always heard the phrase, but I never, I never actually heard of this movie uh-huh. or the play upon which is it is based. So this was, I was very welcome to watch this film. Like, oh, cool! I never heard of this. Great, sitting down and watch it. And knowing that it's from the seventies, you hearing a movie that's called Five on the Black Hand Side, I'm like, oh man, it's five brothers taking down a man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, 
I'm like, okay. I know what I'm in for. I said, well, it was 1973. Well, Fred was Black Caesar. So what five brothers did they get? You know, Bill's Cosby, if you've never seen him before. <laughs> you know, I don't know what's coming my way, man. I don't, I'm just ready. I'm like, I'm sure Duravel's going to show up. But I, other than that, I'm like, yo, what is ahead of me? So I'm like, so then when it opens up on this very domestic situation, I'm like, okay, well, this is different. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I'm sure this was five on the back. Is this a movie or a television show? I'm not quite sure. Um, so it was very welcome for me. Uh, like you said, Clarice Taylor, I see her. I immediately go to the Sanford and Son um, <laughs> episode. Honestly, until you said it, I never realized that she was, that was the same actress playing the grandmother, yeah. Cliff's mother, on um, on the Cosby show. So... Duh me. I'll give it up. Um, But seeing her, I was like, okay. Because in my head, only know her from Sanford and Son and thinking that she was hilarious. I was like, whatever happened to that actress? I never seen her anything else. (laughs) So I was like, oh, here you go. Here you go. (laughs) She's right here. She's got a movie that either came before, and I think this came actually before. before. It is before. Oh, so now I know why Fred got her for the the show. Right. She's great, you know? Um, So, and then Leonard Jackson, he never disappoints. And he's leaning in hard. Yeah. Into his role. So I'm like, okay, I'm with this. You know, Glenn Turman, um, this is early Glenn Turman. He's doing his Bruce Lee on the roof. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm like, oh, what what's happening here? I'm like, okay, I'm here. Actually, I'm there for all of it. I'm I'm there for the daughter. I love Ruby's interplay with her father, even her interplay with mom. I don't take I don't take off my hat and say, all right, let me just sit down and enjoy this crazy film until Dervell shows up. <laughs> because when Dervell shows up, I'm like. Oh, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. And we're gonna talk about Durville a little bit. We're gonna spend a little time on Durville. Time on Durville Martin. Down the line. Book yeah. T. He's just come up once too many off. To, like, we gotta spend some time on on Durville. So I'm in on this film. And it's light. It's it, you know, it's amusing, it's cute. Um it's funny. Um it's it's different from Ever, like this is a totally different world than what's happening in Black Caesar, considering mm-hmm. that they're both made the same same yeah. year. Um, so I'm enjoying it. I'm I'm enjoying it a lot. I, I enjoyed the, the the trip to the to the the barbershop, you know, and all the shenanigans that happens there. You know, um, they could have done better, you know, making people look one way when they sit in the chair and when they get out. And it's like they look pretty much the same. But, you know, like they didn't even like tighten up the part. Right. I'm like, like, dude, at least tighten up the part. You didn't even <laughs> tighten up the part, dog. You know, if you're not going to put the throw a pick in there, at least tighten up the part. Let me see some. But it's, it's whatever. It's fun. It, there's a lot of good times. We hear some early, we hear early rap. Yes. We hear, not only do we hear early rap, but we hear pre-Dolomite signifying monkey. How about that? How about that? I'm like, yo, this was very interesting. Yeah. To hear all of, I mean, you basically see the origins of what Dolomite would become in this film. Yeah. In the barbershop. Yeah. So that, that's kind of cool. 
And I agree with pretty much everything that you say, except one thing. Okay. I do believe that while it is heightened, certainly, I do believe that this movie is a depiction of a 70s that did exist. Okay. I do believe that, and I don't, um, I do believe that there were people that were in this time, which is, you know, the civil rights movement is still kind of progressing. It's in it's, it, the movement as we know it is in it's definitely in its later stages, but it still is still recent enough that it's being it, it, whatever impact it had is being felt and okay. it's still being championed. The women's right movement is definitely surging at that time. Um, and also in the background and not really not a, not mentioned in this film, but you have to remember it is there is Vietnam is going on. Right. So you have the the um all of these three things coming to a head in black society at that time. And and especially the youth as depicted in this film because the 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 kids are all adults. They're not little kids. They're right. all like like in their twenties or maybe a little it, it like in their twenties. Right. The, I mean, Glenn Turman's character is the youngest brother. Right. And he's in college. Right. So, so you so got to yeah, figure they're yeah. at least late teens or in into their twenties. Right. So they are feeling the brunts of all of these things coming. These forces that are at work, mm-hmm. and as well as their peers. And I don't think the answer is necessarily just putting on the daishiki and being black, but I think the answer that as they are trying to, you know, um, illustrate in this film is to be true to who you are. And if you're not sure of who you are, then take that moment to discover it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think it's very, I think one of the best scenes in this film is the discussion that happens between um, Booker T or AKA as he wants to be called Sharif mm-hmm. Dervell Martin's character and his brother Gideon played mm-hmm. by Glenn Turman their conversation on the roof where Gideon not only challenges his older brother to admit that he has some type of bias against black women. Right. And only wants to date white women. And he's not being, he's not being, um, he's not being like judgmental uh, to him about that. He just wants him to admit it for himself. Like, like you owe it to yourself, dude. Just admit that, admit that, 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 that bias within right, you. Right, right, right. Say your it. Thing. Own it. Right. And 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 in owning it, you know, be true to it. If you're dating a white woman, don't date her on the low. Right. Be upfront with it. Like, just own that stuff, man. I, I'm your brother. You know what I mean? Regardless of whether or not I would date a, a white woman or not, I'm not going to judge you if you feel like you want to date a judge 
a white woman. Oh, he's a little judgy. A little judgy, but 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 I think the the point of his conversation is for him to own it. Yeah, be true to yourself. Be true to yourself, okay? That, because that that is where you're going to, um, that's where it starts. Especially because with him wanting to be called Sharif and all this stuff, and he's trying to promote like this whole pro black stuff. So like, we well, ain't being true to yourself. You ain't being pro me. Be pro you. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Because that is what. You know, Gideon calls himself doing, you know, by living up on the roof and not wanting to follow the trajectory of going to college to be to do what his father wants him to do. Right. You know, Um, so I think that that is the action and, and the answer that they're trying to illustrate in this in this film. And I saw that firsthand in my household with my older brother and sister. I saw them both kind of like walking their finding their own paths right through those through those uh through through those worlds okay in in the in the 70s as I was growing up and I was and I was very cognizant of it um so that was another appreciation that I had on this film okay uh, from this film now there were some things of this film looking at it from a 2019 lens that as progressive as the story you know, was that still bothered me. Okay. You know, like I didn't, I didn't like the idea that, you know, Mrs. Brooks and standing up for herself and great scenes with her and, and Janet Dubois as Stormy and um, Bonnie Banfield as the, her other girlfriend, Gail. Yes. yes. Gail, who is not seen at all in this movie Without a piece of food. Which is hilarious. Hilarious. It's a hilarious visual. Yeah. A hilarious visual gag. I loved every moment of it. Um, but they have... Gr- and, and I could have watched a film with just them. So yeah. Oh, yeah. So cool. But in Gail... St- excuse me. And in Gladys standing up for herself, um, I didn't like that... As much as she is trying to make her point, and I think she's being, you know, comedically, but uh, very poignantly trying to get her point across. I didn't like that ultimately the point only gets across to Mr. Brooks when an outsider depicts it to him. Because because it only hits home with him. Right. and, and, And even some lessons that have to hit home to the brothers... It's depicted by another black man. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, you talk about Derville Martin. I'm fascinated by Marvin's character. Marvin is is the sister's fiance. Right. Played by Carl Franklin. Played by Carl Franklin, who, working actor, Mm -hmm. 1973, I think he may have had one or two roles at this point. But he is in no way like Sidney Poitier or something. No. But the film keeps him off stage. Right. Like he's like like when he shows up, it's gonna be this huge deal. Right. Like you're expecting Sidney Poitier or Harry Belafonte to come walking right. into this. On and the then screen. when he shows up, it really is like Jesus has descended because he clears up everything. Right. You're absolutely right. He comes in with, with his Afro halo. Right. So in my mind, it wasn't even so much that a man had to come in and he heard his man's voice. It's really just Marvin. Right. Okay. Who apparently Marvin mm-hmm. is the voice that everyone needs to hear to make things right. 
Yeah. Which I just found strange. Like, I, I felt like I was strange. missing something. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was a little bit of a disconnect, especially when then cut to the wedding, you know, this African wedding. Which, yes. Beautiful ceremony. Beautiful ceremony. Well depicted. I liked it. I liked every aspect. Very of it. ornate. Very ornate. Yeah. I loved it. I loved it. But then they say I do. Yes. And Marvin sits on his throne. On his throne. And then she sits on a little stool. And she sits in, like that's not. I mean, I think that, that's not a good I, I visual. Think that may be the. That, but that's the times. That's the times. That's yeah. the times. Can I just say this about the wedding? So everyone is wearing their traditional garb. Mm-hmm. And of course, Mr. Brooks is wearing a his suit, like a three P and not even just a suit. It's like an, an English banker's suit. That's true. Like he looks like the dad from Mary Poppins <laughs> or, or the wedding's butler. Right. So he's, you know, I, I'm not signing up for all this. Mm. I love the fact that Marvin's parents aren't signing up for it either. Did you oh, notice true, they weren't yeah. wearing like Marvin's dad was also just wearing a suit, but then Marvin's mom, I'm not putting this on either. Yeah. Also found that kind of realistic. I do too. <laughs> like you do this stuff, yeah, you ain't gonna get these old people in this stuff. Yeah. The difference the difference though with them is that while they're not wearing the garb, they're definitely into the ceremony. They're well, they're they're We going along with Marvin. Oh, well. You know, we like this girl he's he's married. That he met two days ago. Oh, I, don't, I think they know. I know. I'm yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah, but that was weird with Marvin. And especially Marvin had to come and um, pacify things and patch things over. Because we're not going to leave this show without talking about the fact that uh, Glenn Turman was, was swinging a spear. Yes. At, <laughs> at Derville Mark. At his brother. At his brother. Like I wrote in my notes, Glenn Turman has, has tried to stab Derville Martin with a spear. This is the most 70s scene I've ever seen. <laughs> Like, the only way this scene could have been more 70s is if Thalmas Rosala was on the side eating ribs. <laughs> like, he's like eating ribs, watching Glenn Turman swing a spear at Durville Martin. That ain't how I showed you. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was, I said, oh, the 70s. Yeah. Oh, I love you. That was, that was a little weird. Yeah. That was very, that was actually very weird. <laughs> it was actually very weird. But what took me out is that, because Durville Martin calls him out on it, like, you know, like, because they were about to get into a, a you know, a, a right, fight. Right. And he's like, yo, you put down a spear, we, we, we can go hands. Right, right, right. And Glenn is like, nah. No. <laughs> no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm Glenn Terman. It's 1973. <laughs> I weigh 90 pounds. <laughs> I'm not fighting nobody. Yeah. But then he's calling him a coward. He's, he's like, I ain't calling. Dude, I'm not a coward. I'm just not dumb. Right, right. <laughs> I'm yeah. not going to fight you. 90 pounds. Yes. 20 of it is this afro. And you already stabbed me. Because <laughs> yeah. you got me on arm. Like, yo, dude, I'm not playing. I'm going home. <laughs> dude, I love that they acted like siblings. They did. Like, that was like a brother fight. It was. It was. Because even when Glenn Turman cuts them, mm-hmm. you can tell on it's like Glenn he, Turman's like, Oh, I didn't oh, I didn't really mean to cut you. Yeah. It was one it was one of those moments, oh, I ain't mean to cut you. Then like I hit an artery, oh you're not bleeding out, you're still there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I I just think this is a really warm movie. It's a it's a warm movie. It's fun. It's it's uh it's uh it's light, it but it does, you know. 
It's not heavy handed with his message. It's not, uh, which I actually do appreciate. Yeah. Um, it's it's based on a play, and you can feel you can feel where they pad it. Sure. You know, to make it a feature length. Sure. Film. Um, but that's fine. Uh, Clarice Taylor, who actually originated the role in the play, yes, um, I think is probably still in play mode, um, but everybody else is right as well. The other thing I want to say, Janet Dubois, it's stormy, but for all intents and purposes, this is Walona. Yeah, this is Walona. Yeah. So so there's that. But I will say this movie gave me more of an appreciation for her. Okay. Um than I think Good Times ever has cuz it's Good Times she was she basically is like, you know, for most of that show like you know, come in with her funny line, right? And then it kind of bounced, and then until they made her the the lead, and she she held it on pretty well. I mean, it was but good times, she, but she realized she had to, you know. Right. But good times was good times, right? It wasn't rock, right? But in this, but in this, I do think she shows like some shades of different colors and uh, uh-huh. and 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 to her character that. I actually kind of like really appreciate it. I actually just really liked her in this movie a lot. Well, it's funny that you talked about what you see as as padding. And I know you didn't even mean it negatively. Mm-hmm. Using the word like padding in scenes. But there is this elasticity mm-hmm. in scenes like when they're in the kitchen or the barbershop scenes where you do get the sense that the play was the skeleton but now we're going to just let it breathe. Mm-hmm. And you almost feel like they just let the camera run. Yeah. And you're right. Janet Du Bois in that space has the space mm-hmm. to kind of do more. Right. And they're great scenes. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, they're great scenes. And that do see, like, there's a moment when they're in the kitchen where, where Janet Du Bois says, you know, I'm, I'm a little parched. I'm a little parched. Mm-hmm. And... And Mrs. Brooks gets up and gets a bottle of Johnny Walker. Mm-hmm. And then other friend says, and do you have anything to munch on? <laughs> and you feel like, oh, well, this is about to be a part. Like, this is it right here. And you just you just want to lean back in your chair and watch these three women. Yeah. So, and, and, and same thing with the barbershop, where it does feel like time just doesn't move. It doesn't. The, um, now, you as... Answer me. Do you remember, while it was very, certainly um, few in between women coming into the barbershops when I was a kid? Yeah. But women were welcome in the barbershop. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the best barber at my barbershop was this woman, Ann. Right. And that was the person everybody was. Well, I don't remember women barbers. Oh, really? But, But there was always, there was always some little boy in there that their mom brought them. See that? See that's at my barbershop, Nash's barbershop here in, in Germantown. Uh-huh. Nash owned the bar barbershop. Nash wasn't a bad barber, but he right. wasn't by far like the best barber. Right? You know, he did all the deacons. Yeah. And your first barber, your first, he was your sure. first barber. Sure, sure, absolutely. But every and that was like about maybe two or three other guys. But everybody. Like sitting there 
was waiting for Anne. Oh, because Anne would cut you up? Anne would hook you up. What year are we talking? We're talking the 70s. We're talking. Oh, the 70s. Okay. We're talking. We're talking. Like, I feel like I started going to Nash's like when I was around six or seven years old. So we're talking about 75, 76. Like right in the heart of it, man. Yeah. And uh and and was that. And I going there, I it wasn't until I got like a little older, like ten or eleven, that I recognized, you know, that people were actually waiting for a particular barber and they were waiting for Anne. Sure. And even then, as the kid, I was still I was still too young to just be waiting on a barber. Right? Like, no, you go to the one you that's go, open. Go to the one that's open, so we can get up out of here. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Um, but I couldn't wait to get old enough to say no. I'm waiting for. I'm Anne. waiting for because and, and my uh, my take on it, and this was Anne's take on it as well, who is now since retired, um, was that she was going to cut your hair the way she felt a black woman would want you to look. Oh. So you came out of Anne's looking. Oh. It's sharp, dog. We used to go to Harry's Afro Hut. Harry's Afro Hut? Harry's Afro Hut. And and Harry would cut. Harry gave me my first haircut, and Harry cut my hair and until I was like 14, 15. And remember, it was the great, it was a great barber upheaval where like the older barbers couldn't do flat tops, and oh. and, 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 and and you know high top fades, mm. and then Harry, Harry had a grandson mm. who had had some challenges. Okay, had been away. Okay, for uh, like five to seven. Okay, as but he now, dealt with these challenges. As he dealt with these challenges, then he had come back, and Harry was trying to bring him into legitimate life. Okay. And then he was my barber. And he was your barber. Because he could do flat tops and, and Did fades. You, you weren't his training ground. No, right? I wasn't oh, his okay. training ground. But, okay. But yeah, but no, I don't I don't remember women barbers. I remember women in the shop. Like it'd be women. And then and I think this the the, the movie depicts this. You know, it was always people in and out selling stuff. Always, always. You know, dinners and socks and this and that. So always. You know, women were part of the merchant class. That will come into the barbershop. I feel like if you watch this film, one of the one of the scenes you're gonna you're gonna fall on and people are gonna like recognize and love is the scene where they're like the guy comes in, I forget his name, but he starts doing like the whole rapping. Oh, Frankie Crocker. Yeah. Frankie Crocker, the great Frankie legendary uh DJ. Is that who it was? Yeah, I, I, I had no DJ, idea who Frankie that Crocker. was. That's right. I had no idea. I know the name now. Yeah, of course, oh yeah. But I, I had never seen his his face. Um and uh, and it's a it's a fun scene. Yeah. I think it goes on a little long, but yeah. it's a fun scene. But the scene that tickles me in that barbershop is the numbers guy. Yeah. Oh, well, that's who, that's Frankie Crocker. Oh, so that's guy. Frankie Crocker. Numbers. Right. You talking about the guy who may have been a pimp? Right. But, they're but very, they don't say. They don't say because that's not what this movie is. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. appreciated that. Yeah, I did. It's so, like, oh, we don't need a pimp in this. Okay. So he's pimpish. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, Frankie Crocker is a numbers guy. Yeah, that's my scene. Yeah, that's that's my scene too. I love that scene. Yeah. I loved everything about it. He was smooth. His look reminded me of I have an uncle, um my uncle uh, Alfred, um who that was his look. 
It was always that dude. Yeah, always it's a slick it's back always to perm. It's like Afro, 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 Afro. Oh, your stuff is permed. Yes. Afro, 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 Afro. <laughs> and that, that was, it was Uncle always Alfred. that dude. Yeah. So like seeing him, I was like, oh, man, Uncle Alfred was smooth. Like uh-huh. it was smooth like that too, dude. Oh my god, you, you uh, couldn't be a black man with a perm in 1973 and not, not be smooth. smooth. Nah, right. Nah. So I, I love that scene. So, uh, so that was Frankie. Yeah, Crawford. that was Frankie Crawford. And that, that makes sense because he was very eloquent. Yes, he was. He was. He was. He, I'm like, oh, okay. He was stepped up a bit. Greatest numbers runner I'd ever seen. <laughs> Maybe he won't play the number. But we all know. We all know. Delroy Lindo taught us that you don't write it down. West Indian Archie, don't write it down. Don't write it down. Man, no had no paper. Man, no had you. <laughs> That's right. West Indian. I talk about that all the time. Keep it in here. Y'all don't see it. I'm tapping on my head. Mm-hmm. Gotta keep it in your head. That's right. Right. I love that scene. I love that scene. Yeah, this was cool. Um, it, one last thing. Godfrey Cambridge shows up in this yeah. film. Yeah. Uh, Godfrey Cambridge, noted comedian, um, actor of this time. We he's shown up here on the on the mission famously in uh, Cotton Goes Cotton Comes to Harlem and of course in The Watermelon Man. Yes. This film 1973 uh Godfrey Cambridge would pass away in 1976 and I'm sorry to say that I think you see the beginning He looks sick. Yeah, of him yeah. wearing away. Yeah, it's I, I actually don't like that moment. Yeah, me neither. Like, I actually don't like the moment where Godfrey Cambridge shows up because mm-hmm. he looks like he's sick. Yeah, yeah. And, and I appreciate him lending his star power mm-hmm. and and his visibility to this, but it was like, oh, yeah, yeah. So that was really hard hard for me to see. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't even. I, I wasn't even going to mention it. Like I wouldn't even go and bring it up. I guess we should. <laughs> I, I mean, I. I mean. I mean, you did. It's, you, a, it's you, a small thing, but I, you did your due diligence, and right. it's Godfrey Cambridge, and we love Godfrey Cambridge. So, but now we get to Durvelville. But now we get to Durville Martin. Durville Martin, ladies and gentlemen, who was an actor and director throughout the seventies. Yes, he was. Has appeared in many a film. Yes, he has. Um, he has shown up in on on the Michelle mission just last week in just Black Caesar. Just last week, he was all speaking of Watermelon Man. He's in Watermelon Man in a small role. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think I really recognized him in Watermelon Man. I think we may have spoken about it, but I don't. Right, think right, I, right, right. And he plays the bus driver, so right. he's only in it for a minute or two. But when he showed up in Black Caesar, and we talked about the choices that he made, that's that's the word we're giving to it. Yes. And, you know, we appreciated them. They lit up that film. Yes. But I also thought that, okay, he's made a lot of choices. <laughs> he's also made some significant visual choices in this movie. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, that's cool. That's cool. What is going on with Durville Martin? But now we get to Five on a Black Hand Side, and some of those visual choices are still there. I, I, <laughs> So to put it plainly, and to ask you, Vince. Okay. What is going on with his mustache? What's going? On? His mustache, his hair, his hair. Like he has a pick sticking out of his hair for most of the movie that he refuses to use. <laughs> 
Dervo Martin always looks like he got up at three in the morning to go use the bathroom. Yes, yes. He he walks around with bedhead all the time. And bed mustache. It, How it, do you have bed mustache? I don't know if it's bed mustache because it, it looks like dead butterfly wings. Around. And it's just. And it's all in his mouth. It seems like it would get in the way of you eating. Yes. Like it look it, it looks like it looks like a mustache curtain that you have to pull to the side to right. put food. It's really very distracting. It's it's a lot in a film set in the seventies. Yes. Yeah. I mean, where there is, I mean, there are facial hair choices throughout this film. Dick Anthony Williams' whole whole face thing. situation, right, is magnificent. It is. You know, the 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 want to be pimp has mutton chops. Mutton chops and some weird some weird flat top flat top part. Part. Yeah, oh yeah. You know, pre Bobby Brown thing yeah. going oh, on. Oh yeah, on don't top be cruel. Head, yeah. You know? Um, you know, there are plenty of gorgeous Afro crowns right, being right. worn on this film. Frankie Crocker has a perm. Frankie Crocker's got a perm. Uh, Leonard Jackson, he's got some weird sartorial choices yeah, going on yeah, top of his yeah, head too. Yeah. But Derville Martin, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. I do not. I know. don't know what his look was. No. Again, you want to believe if you are a fan of Dolomite is my name that that's and you see Wesley Snipes that, portraying Derville Martin that he. His oh, what what? Why is he doing that? I'm sure the guy wasn't that. No, 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 that's him. This is this that's is him. the man. And I don't know if he was drinking on the set, but that would certainly explain some things. It would explain some things. It would also explain. Well, he obviously was a very courageous man, because only a courageous man like Dervo Martin, in the shape that he was in, walks around in a tank top all the time. All the time. Like all the like half the movie he's in this. He is tank flaunting. Top. He's got this pick hanging out of his head <laughs> that he refuses to use. I'm like, brother, can't you just pick it out? Like that's what I was saying every time he was on the screen. Brother, because he's my brother. So I always start with brother. Mm-hmm. Brother, can't you just pick it out? Maybe he only has the handle. <laughs> because if you told me that the actual picks broke in his hair, broke in there. I would believe it. That looked like one. That was one of the metal ones. Remember the metal picks that actually hurt. Well, did where, you see? Where you would pick go. Ruby ping, had would, one. Yeah, she had one that looked like like wrought iron. Yeah, joints. Right? I ain't like. I, I didn't. No. I didn't like the picks with the metal. No, with, with the metal teeth. You could like because they hurt. They not only hurt, you could literally hear them like electrifying right, your hair. Right, right, right. They it's, would pick through. Like I want my stuff to look nice, but this, this is just a lot. I like the plastic. I like plastic. The little with, plastic with, joint with, with 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 red and black. And I was about fist. to say you had the red and black joint. <laughs> yes. you had a, did you have a, that closed up? It closed, it closed up. up. Closed, the closed up. up joint. And then it would fold the make right, the middle and have the peace sign in the middle. Right. Ah, the peace sign in the middle. <laughs> Oh, that's what I had. That's though. what I like. You had to have that in your right. back pocket. Yeah, but that that black pick with the nah. metal teeth. Nah, nah. Oof. But Dervo Martin needed it. You couldn't tell him that, <laughs> right? And who am I to judge? Who am I to judge, Dervo, Dervo Martin? Martin? Right? Because I'm an actor. Because I'm an actor. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. 
Exactly. <laughs> oh, God. So, Vince. Yes. Would you recommend this film for I people? I would recommend this film. Like I said, I'm a huge fan of this film. Like, this film really makes me warm, feel warm inside. Mm-hmm. Like, like, it really does hold the same place in my heart as Uptown Saturday Night or as um, Your Beloved Cooley High. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's some films that are, like, they're just these warm depictions of blackness. Mm-hmm. That I hold near and dear. I, I really, really like the cast. Uh, as we've talked about, this is a snapshot of a fair number of working actors, working yeah. black actors, early in their careers. Very early. Very early in their careers. But you can see how they went to different aspects mm-hmm. of work. Um, yeah, yeah, fan of this film. Fan of this film, so yes, I would absolutely recommend it. Yeah, I liked it. I would like it. I, I would. I would definitely recommend it. I think it's a uh, a change of pace. If you are a, a fan of seventies black films, it's a, it's definitely a change of pace. Yeah, in um is in its depiction of just everyday life. Um, and it's not while a lot of those films, a lot of black films of this era, are arched more towards the serious. Um, this is definitely arched more to the just um, family and humor. Um, yeah, it's actually a family film. It's a family film, and it's 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 cool. It's a, it's it's a it's a it's a. I can see this being like a nice little Saturday watching. Yeah, this film. absolutely. This is a film that you put on at the cookout. Absolutely, and people sit there and then just enjoy and bug out with. Absolutely, it's it like oh my god, it's Valona. Yes, yes, you know. So, um, yeah, check it out. And and I've got a funny feeling. If you watch this, you'd want to have a wedding like that. I thought that wedding was actually pretty cool. It was a beautiful wedding. I, 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 I you know, I changed the seating arrangement at the end of it. Right, right. It was a beautiful wedding. But uh, everything else, I really loved. I really loved. So it's a fun film. All right. Before we tell you what we're going to be watching next week on the Michelle Mission, ladies and gentlemen, I invite you to send us all of your feedback and your questions and concerns. Email us at michellemission at gmail.com. Michelle, named after Oscar Michaud, is spelled M-I-C-H-E-A-U-X. Or join our Facebook group, The Michelle Mission, where people are having a whole lot of fun. And thank you, each and every one of you that have joined and has also taken a moment. And it, it, the tally keeps going up to go to our website, MichelleMission.com, and buy some of our new T-shirts and sweatshirts that we've got out there. Um, a lot of people, uh, I just saw a, a sale actually got rung up while we were recording this. Somebody bought the uh, 1950s Michelle Mission. Oh! Oh, with thank uh, you. Dorothy Dandridge on it. So that's pretty dope. Um, so go check that out. The Michelle Mission is a proud member of the Podglomerate Podcast Network. The Podglomerate curated podcast for your earbuds. Go to thepodglomerate.com to check out everything that they have there for you. We are also available in an edited form as a radio show every Saturday at 1 p.m. on WPPM, 106.5 FM, Philly Cam, People Powered Media. Philly Cam. Here in the city of brotherly love. And you can listen to us every Monday at 9 a.m. just before you tune into DJ Rue on WKDU 91.7 FM, the voice of Drexel University. All right. Okay, you're up. I am up. 
and I've been making my way steadily to this film. Uh-oh. And it is time. Is it time? It is time, Vince. We're going to do it the easy way? We're not going to do it the easy way. We're going to do it the medium way? We're not going to do it the medium way. How are we going to do it? We're going to do it three the hard way. Three the hard way. Jim Brown, Fred Williamson, and Jim Kelly. Oh. In three the hard way. Three the hard Boy, we we deep in it now. We're stepping into it. We, we deep in it now. That's coming your way next <clears throat> week on The Me Show Mission. Until then, he's Vince, I'm Len, and parting we say. We'll see you when it's time to meet again. It's time to bid adieu. It's been a pleasure knowing you. I'll see you when it's time to meet again. <laughs>